Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. There are links, of course, in the show notes below. Oh, we've got lots of fun stuff to talk about today. I'm really excited. I really love this. I really love this show. Oh, we got such exciting things to talk about today. So we'll start off by talking about The Lazy DM's Companion. So I am running a Kickstarter for my latest book, The Lazy DM's Companion. The Lazy DM's Companion is the third of the Lazy Dungeon Master series with Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, and The Lazy DM's Companion. You can back the new book, The Companion, and get it either in print and PDF, or you can actually order all three books. Uh, it's the first time we're doing an offset print run of all three books. You can pick it up. So the Kickstarter has been doing very, very well. I'm really excited about it. Lots of people are going to be getting this book, and that, that excites me greatly. I've been running weekly videos aside from these aside from the talk show and stuff to talk just about the kickstarter and i did one last week that i really enjoyed called let's make an adventure in which i used the i used the companion the current sample chapters hey look there's me acting goofy i did the sample chapters that you can get right now on the Kickstarter for free, sample pages, right? 17 sample pages. I used a lot of that. And then I used some other material that I have in the draft versions of what's going to be in the companion, which are two PDFs that are available to patrons called Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets and Sly Flourish's Adventure Generators. All those are getting cleaned up, new graphic design, new art, all sorts of stuff and put into the Lazy DMs companion. So I used that to build an adventure and it was really fun. It was, it was really cool. I liked it so much. So we, I kind of rushed through the end a little bit because we, we, we got far along and I really got a lot of, uh, I really had a lot of, a lot of material to run an adventure. I could have run an adventure with what I had. However, I don't have to run this adventure yet. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to kind of dig in a little bit more and look at like using the map and filling out chambers and doing some of the, the lower level adventure building stuff. So I think we're going to do that on Thursday, this this Thursday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I don't know what the date is of that. So we're going to do another Let's Make an Adventure and look at doing lower level stuff, look like lower, you know, lower specificity. So like rooms of chambers, pieces of treasure, individual NPCs, shaking up monsters, you know, stuff like that. So I think we're going to do that plus another Q&A. So uh, on top of that, we people can ask questions about the Kickstarter itself. I would expect they would do so anyway, and we'll answer those questions. So that will be uh, a lot of fun. That'll be this Thursday. That will probably be, I don't know if that'll be the last hour video. It might be because the Kickstarter ends the Thursday after that. So maybe I might do one more video, one last video in like the final three days where we talk about something. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But really fun. And that, that's clearly, thanks to those of you who asked me to do that, because that is clearly a really interesting an effective way to not only show off the Lazy DMs companion, but also make an entertaining show other than me talking about shipping concerns. So yeah, check that out. And you can check out the last Let's Make an Adventure video. It will be in the links below as well. Or just check the YouTube page or if you're on the podcast, you probably already saw it. Fizzband's Treasury Dragons. This is Watsy's latest book. I think it's coming out next week. I think it's like the 22nd. Somebody, somebody in the chat remind me, but I think it's the 22nd. That it's coming out? I think, I don't know if it's coming out to stores then. I know it'll be on D&D Beyond then. So it'll be interesting. Uh, a lot of reviewers, the 26th, says Blue Badger. 26th, so that's, okay, that's the Tuesday. That's a week from this coming Tuesday. They moved it back to the 26th. That's a bummer. Yeah, global shipping concerns everywhere about these books. So I, my local game shop, I ordered the pretty, the, the special edition cover, so I'm excited for that. 
but a lot of reviewers have gotten their copies already. A lot of a lot of uh, people who typically do full reviews of this. And so I've been taking a look at some of the full reviews. There's been pieces of it sent around uh, in different places. And uh, Bell of Lost Souls gets a lot of information about it. And so they posted the table of contents for it, which gave us a good look at like what's inside. Uh, yeah, it looks good. I, I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm, 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 I'm eager for this book. It's got a lot of neat things in it. And I'm, I'm, it's also an interesting one to look at because it's, I, I mean, I guess Van Richten's guide was sort of one of our big looks at how they're the new monster design of 5e. And certainly Van Richten's guide was in a, in a direction there, but this one, certainly the development of it has been when they're thinking more about what monsters look like, which means we can use this to kind of gauge what monsters are going to look like in Monsters of the Multiverse, which in theory gives us an idea about what they're thinking about for building monsters for the monster manual. They have enough time. This is Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast has enough time between the release of Monsters of the Multiverse and the new monster manual, which I think is at least two years later from Monsters of the Multiverse, maybe more. They have enough time that if there was feedback about monsters from Monsters of the Multiverse, they could incorporate that feedback when they're doing the monsters in the monster manual. So it doesn't mean we can't use this as a gauge to say, what is D&D 2024 going to look like? Probably it'll be something similar to that, but they might change their minds. And we're going to talk about how they have changed their minds just within the past couple of years. So, yeah, so really neat stuff. Anyway, one of the things that I got very excited about in the video, let's see, we looked at table content. One of the things that I got, oh, so well, there was one very interesting thing that got discussed, which is the canon of dragons. What that Wizards of the Coast changing canon. And it's not just about dragons. It's actually about changing canon overall. And they changed it in a pretty fundamental way and a way that, that, you know, I imagine people are going to be, that some people are going to get riled up about. And, and I, I must admit that I get sort of, it, it, it amuses me sometimes when people get riled up. I love this game thoroughly. I think about it all the time. I've spent a tremendous amount of time doing stuff with this game and it's still, it's a game and we can relax. And what I love about it is like, there's nothing anybody can do to, that changes how I want to run my game. Right. So that's great. But I do kind of enjoy this. And so there's a poem uh, written by James Wyatt that's inside, that's inside Fizban's Treasury of Dragons that talks about this idea of the first world. And it's built in a it's built in a poem, right? And the poem is about essentially the first world that existed out of chaos, right? And formed the multiverse. And both Bahamut and Tiamat worked together to build this first world. And then it got destroyed, including the Bahamut, Tiamat, and another dragon. The dragon sang of the ruby red jewel that made their likeness. Sardier, the first of the dragon, uh, firstborn of dragon kind. So, as I'm wondering, is there a gem like? There's, there's a, a you know, Bahamut is the metallic dragon god. Tiamat is the chromatic dragon god. Who is the gem dragon god, right? And is, is it the Sardior? So, anyway, the idea is that there essentially there's this world. There was a world called the first world that all of the rest of the multiverse spawned from. And, and when the first world was destroyed, it exploded and it turned, it turned every, it, it built all of the other. And so all of your worlds, Toral and Aber and Earth and O-R, 
O-R-E-T-H, right? The, the world of Greyhawk. I forget what the Dragonlance world is called. Kryn, right? Kryn from Dragonlance. All of the worlds that exist, Faerun, of course, all of the worlds that exist came from this first world, which is sundered, right? which is, was destroyed and spread out and became all these other worlds. And what, what amuses me about that, so then the, there's a question, well, what about Eberron? Like Eberron is really a different, you know, you know, a different thing, right? Well, what kind of amuses me is it's, it's sort of like a, it's, it's sort of a arms race, a, a world building arms race between homebrewers and the official campaign worlds, because the Wizards of the Coast comes out with their official campaign worlds, Faroon and Kryn and uh, Eberron and all these other ones. And then DMs say, yeah, that's fine, but I have my own world that I want to build. And Wizards are generally like, yeah, we know. But then what they're saying is, well, hey, we're creating the first world and your world exists in our world, right? If you make a homebrew world, it's part of the first world that came from. And then the homebrewers are like, no, it didn't. Like first world's your thing, not my thing. And so it becomes this like, well, you know, oh, you have a homebrew world? Well, guess what? Ours is above yours, right? And it's like, you can't make a world above mine, right? So I don't know. It, It amuses me. I, I get amused with the idea of like, is there this arms race of like, well, my world exists above your world. Well, no, my world exists above your, my the first world, I have a zero level. I have a zero world, right? I have the world that occurred before the first world did. Ha. Huh? So I don't know. It, it kind of, and somebody says, that's fine, Watsy. I don't care. Yeah. And that's, that's a result, right? You get to, of course, make whatever canon you want. I think, I think, you know, playing nice. I think what Wizards is saying is like, we want these dragons to be useful. A, we want to have these dragons useful in all of our worlds, not just one. We want Bahamut, like how does Bahamut and Tiamat exist both in Faerun and in Kryn, right? They want to be able to say, yeah, (laughs) Scipio says, that's like kids saying infinity plus one, right? And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Double infinity, infinity to the infinity of power. So that that number's mind boggling. So they, they want to be able to use a book of dragons and say a few things. One is that you can use this, these dragons in your world, whatever it is, whether it's a homebrew world or whether it's one of your favorite worlds, you can now use this in any of, in any of those worlds. And that's why they created the first world. And that's a cool idea. I kind of like the idea of it, the, the idea of a first world, that there was this one world that kind of spawned the multiverse first. And we can, you know, because I like the idea that there's remnants of it, right? I kind of did this in my fourth edition campaign, that there were like remnants of wars that occurred. There were planets of war old war machines of the gods right and so this idea that there's what if there are giant pieces of the first world floating out in the darkest reaches of the astral sea that have you know treasures and technology well beyond anything anybody's ever thought of anywhere else in the multiverse i like that idea and i think that that would be a really cool kind of high tier campaign campaign setting so that is the 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 lore of the first world which i was interested in the other uh oh what did I do? The other interesting thing is that, and it was on, I saw it from this YouTube video, an hour long preview from Fry's Minis, who did a flip through, a high def flip through of the book. And it meant that you can kind of, you can kind of jump to the various scenes. I actually took screen capture. I blew up the video really big. And then I took screen captures of the stat blocks, but it had stat blocks. The, the stat blocks I were particularly interested in was... I wanted to see what the great worms were like. 
And I wanted to see, like, I want to see what the stat blocks for the great worms were like. And I wanted to see the stat block for the aspect of Tiamat. I thought those were interesting. And I got to see them in this video. Uh, I didn't, I'm not going to share the screen captures because I think it's a little weird to take a video where a guy did a video preview and then screen capture and then pass those screen captures along. So, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. But you can take a look in this video. I'll link it in the show notes below, the Fry's Minis uh, preview. And you can do your own screen capture and take a look at the stat blocks. But I can't talk about them. And they're very simple. They're very straightforward. I think that all of the changes to the monsters that we're seeing has not changed the math of the spreadsheet. I talk about this mystical spreadsheet, right? I, I believe, and I've kind of heard, that there is a big-ass Excel spreadsheet that sits in Watsi, and I think it's in a giant golden vault. And the only person with access to this golden vault is Jeremy Crawford. And he has an outfit that he has to wear with a big hat and a staff that that he uses to enter the vault to go to the spreadsheet, which I think is sitting on like a an old 8086 IBM PC with a green monochrome monitor. And they have to sit down at this green monitor with clacky keys, no mouse. It's all command line. Right. And he has to sit with the clacky keys and like type stuff in and get answers back. Right. And it spits back answers. And no one knows what the math is behind the spreadsheet. It was developed far away. I forget. So, but one thing we know about this spreadsheet is that the spreadsheet has not changed over the course of the, the development of fifth edition. I don't think I'm not making this up. I really don't have it. Believe it or not, I'm making it up about Jeremy Crawford and the hat and the staff. That's not canonical. And I don't know how much work, I don't know what they've changed in the spreadsheet, but I can tell you that the math on the other side doesn't appear to be changing. In other words, like a CR30 monster, in my opinion, is not nearly as powerful as a CR30 monster should be, given that it's CR30, right? It's not CR21, it's not CR16, it's CR30, and it's still doing like 70 damage on a breath weapon. And having run uh, really big dragons against level 20 characters, I can tell you, you need to double up the damage if you're going to threaten it you know characters like that that 140 points of damage that'll do it 70 damaging the stat blocks are also much simplified and without having run them and and just taking a look at them the question is like are they as as robust and as versatile both in the case of the aspect of tiamat and the chromatic great worms uh they are mythic monsters they have mythic actions when they reach a certain level of their hit points suddenly their hit points go up and they get new actions which is cool right it's sort of like the old fourth edition bloodied style Uh, it's a neat it's a neat aspect aspect it's a neat characteristic and it certainly gives them a lot of hit points i think tiamat for example the aspect of tiamat has 10 legendary resistances which effectively means she can make her save whenever she wants and she has like, I think 800 hit points total. Like if you, if you look at the total hit point pool, it's like 800. So that's a lot of hit points, which means even with really high power, high damage characters, it's going to take him forever to beat Tiamat. Like you're going to blow every smite to, to be able to defeat him. The question is, can they dish out the same kind of stuff? They have interesting abilities. Like Tiamat has like a breathe and an area around her with a chromatic breath where she chooses what kind of damage the character takes independently of all the people getting hit. So that's pretty cool. Is it enough damage though? And and what I look at is like, you know, not really. So I don't think so. Given that I've run it, right? Given that I've seen how much damage characters can take, I ran dragons that had 140 point breath weapons and the characters were still able to take it. And so one thing that I noticed between the aspect of Tiamat and the current Tiamat stat block is the current Tiamat stat block is actually, I think, more powerful because she can breathe multiple breath weapons as legendary actions and she has one spell in her spell lineup and this is where like 
that, that whole question of how dangerous a monster can be because of how dangerous a monster can be because of spells that are stuck in their spell block. I ran Tiamat multiple times and didn't realize how powerful uh, Divine Word is. And it's because Divine Word is a bonus action and I didn't realize it. But Divine Word kills people who are down. So she can breathe twice. See, if you're running the full Tiamat, the, 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 team, the current Tiamat, she can breathe, she can wait until she's got two rounds before her turn. She can breathe out one cone, hit a, a whole group for a whole lot of damage. Then somebody takes a turn. Then she breathes again, and that's two big breath weapons. That could definitely down multiple characters, right? If, if she hits with both, if they get stuck under two breath weapons from her, that's a lot of damage. And then it's her turn, and then she can bite and it's claw, and she can knock down maybe somebody else to think like three people. And then right at the end of her turn, she can do divine word, and everybody that was dropped to zero dies. And now, even if the cleric is one of the ones left over, who are they going to resurrect? They can't resurrect everybody, right? They can't do a whole group. So I think T- I think Tiamat, if run correctly, can really be a TPK machine. This is the one from Rise of Tiamat, yeah. And certainly the aspect of Tiamat does not have anything similar. One big question I have, and I got an answer from somebody, was do they talk about draconic spellcasting? And the monster manual has what I consider pretty good guidelines for how to give spells to monster to, to how to give spells to dragons, right? And given the new kind of take on spellcasting, uh, spellcasting dragons, or uh, spellcasting in monsters overall, I was curious: did they add that in, or are they saying like, no, we don't expect dragons that have spells anymore? Apparently, they do. Apparently, in the sections on the on the chromatics and on the uh, metallics, they talk about if you want to give your dragon spells, here's like a set of spells that the dragon may have. And so I think that that's good. And that's because like some of the most fun I've had with dragons in my games are the big spellcasters, Clouth. So Clouth uh, was a NPC in my Storm King's Thunder game. And he definitely, he was like an archmage. He could cast high level spells. And Imrith was another one and she could cast high level spells. So to me, like, especially with Forgotten Realms dragons, if you look back at old lore about Forgotten Realms dragons, they almost always had spellcasting traits. And I think it's cool that they do. I get that it's like, a pain in the ass to run spells for monsters sometimes, but I don't want them removed, right? Because that I think is part of the idea that they are spellcasters, I think is interesting. Like these are very powerful creatures. So how to, how to balance that, how to make a dragon that is easy to run when you're actually running it, but also has these kind of versatile traits, you know, I think is there. So what I'm happy to hear is that there are, there are sections about spellcasting dragons inside, inside Fizzbands. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to this book. I think it'll be really cool. So, uh, talking about monster design, we talked about monster design, I think, in, in the last show or a couple shows ago, and Sean Merwin and I talked about it on the Mastering Dungeons podcast this past week. You can see the video for that on YouTube. Uh, you can also listen to the podcast on the Misdirected Mark Mastering Dungeons podcast. And one of the things that came up is that the on, on, drive, on, on the DMs Guild, there is a, and I'll link to this in the show notes, I'll pass it along to the Twitch. There is a Dungeon Craft Wild Beyond the Witchlight Designers Pack, which on the name, it's like, huh, okay, what, you know, that's interesting. What's that about, right? And it's, I, I guess, a way so that people can publish AL Legal Adventures in, you know, using like the, 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 the campaign theme of Wild Beyond the Witchlight and make them legal. But one of the things that this PDF, what that this pack has is the actual Wizards of the Coast design guidelines, I think, the Wizards of the Coast design guidelines to freelancers from Wizards of the Coast for the current monster design. Which means we all now can see exactly what they tell people to do when they're building monsters. Which is interesting because it means we could use those guidelines to build our own. 
it also gives us a good idea of what Wizards of the Coast is thinking. And uh, you can read it yourself. And there's it's got lots of stuff about like alignment and stuff like that. But one of the interesting things that they said is that we used to... They've, they've essentially gone through three systems. System number one was you have a spell casting trait block inside a stat block that mentions spells. And it mentions all of their spells, including potentially damaging spells, and that those damaging spells are relate to the challenge rating... Uh, of the monster. So if a, an Oni can cast Cone of Cold, the Oni's challenge rating is based on the damage that it's able to do casting Cone of Cold, right? And the challenge rating would change if it was not casting Cone of Cold. And, that, and then they said that they switched over to taking some of the high, those spells that actually affect, I think, I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing, but essentially those, those spells that affect challenge rating should be written out in the stat block, particularly combat spells that affect challenge rating should be written out in the stat block. They did that for a time. And you can see that in like Candlekeep Mysteries. You can see it in Descent into... You can see it in, I think in, in Rime of the Frostmaiden. Spellcasters have some of their... Let's take a look. So let, let me see if I have... So I'll look at one. I'll look at the Sage. Uh, the Sage from Candlekeep Mysteries, right? So this, I mean, came out this year. And you can see Shock and Grasp and shield are listed inside of its stat block. I thought, oh, uh, there's another sa master sage. Let's look at the master sage, sorry. So the master sage is a CR5, right? Shocking grasp, fireball is listed in its spells and shield. So it's got these three different things that are under actions and reactions, right? What's interesting is why a master sage of Candlekeep would have fireball. That seems like a bad spell for uh, a librarian to have. They have now said, instead of, we, we tried this, I think they said something along the lines of, we tried this and it didn't work. And you're like, it didn't? Like, what didn't, like, it hasn't been around that long. It's only been in like a couple of books. But they said that they, it, they tried it and it didn't work. And instead, if you're going to do stuff like this, you should come up with unique abilities for this stat block that have those similar effects. And that's where we can take a look at some of the monsters in, we can take a look at some of the monsters in, let's, let's take a look at Wild Beyond the Witchlight, because that, I think Wild Beyond the Witchlight is the first real time. So this is going to have some spoilers for Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Spoilers on a couple of stat blocks. Keep that in mind. Don't look at those. We're not going to do those. We'll do this guy, right? So a Kellek, right? Kellek is his challenge rating five chaotic evil sorcerer. And you can see he has Sorcerer's Bolt. He doesn't have Fire Bolt. He's got Sorcerer's Bolt, right? And it does four, he doesn't have Magic Missile. Plus six to hit, right? Kellogg makes three attacks. So you can use Sorcerer's Bolt, Staff Striker, and Combination. So he can, he can choose how to do them. And he can throw 13 Force Damage around, you know, with the thing. He has Fiery Explosion, right? Fiery Explosion. Not a Fireball, Fiery Explosion. Magical Explosion, set, you know, 120 feet, same range as Fireball. 20 foot radius, same as Fireball. 14 deck save, same as Fireball. The damage is higher, right? So his is already upcast, right? He's already upcast it to what appears to be fifth level, right? I think that's right, right? And so his does 10d6, 35, 10d6 damage. And then he has Arcane Defense, not Shield. When he's hit by an attack, Kellogg protects himself from the invisible barrier of magical force until the end of his next turn. He gets plus five bonus AC. That's shield, right? It's the same thing as shield on the they call it arcane defense. Now, why it's not just shield, I don't know. Now, there, there's the whole question of like, can you counter this, right? And it does not appear that you can counter it. This is a non-counterable ability because it is not a spell. It is a spell, kind of, but it's not really a spell, right? These are not listed as spells. Which is really, I don't know. Like players are certainly going to be, the first time they figure that out, they're going to get their asses chapped about it. So I was curious. Anyway, all of this is in this design document. And it really show, it give, it, it, what, you know, good or bad, or whether you like it or not, it shows what Watsi is thinking about when it comes to monster design. 
and I find it interesting. Am I, do I, does this bother me? Not really. You know, no one asked my, no one asked my opinion, but I'm going to give it anyway. Does it bother me that they say kind of like, why? I don't know why the other one didn't work. Right. I don't, I was fine with the other one, but Hey, whatever. Right. Such, such is life. And now they have the whole thing of like individual monsters can have an alignment listing in here. And then general monsters will have typically, typically whatever their alignment is. And, and then of course you can always change your alignment. So yes, so that is that. If you want to take a look at it, check out that designer's pack. You can download it and dig in. For us designer types that are making monsters regularly, it doesn't hurt. So let's go into my spotlight today. I didn't, I haven't done a spotlight in a couple of uh, a couple of shows, and all of this gets to a lot of conversations that I've been having about design of D and D and stuff like that. And there is an RPG that I adore. I I played a lot of it. I played probably a year, at least a year's worth of it. I ran multiple campaigns in it. Uh, I've run many, many one shots. I've played in many one shots and that game is 13th age. Where is close these windows? So 13th age is an independent role-playing game written by Rob Hainso and Jonathan Tweet. Jonathan Tweet is a designer from the third edition days of D&D, and Rob Hainso is a designer from the fourth edition days of D&D. And both of them got together, they joined up with Pelgrane Press to put out a single book role-playing game that they describe as their love letter to D&D. And it has really, the, the things that, that make it unique and interesting is that it takes traits from traditional, it takes traits from traditional D&D role-playing games across many editions. So it has a lot of third edition stuff, but it has a lot of fourth edition stuff. So every time I see people lament about loving 4E and that they're not happy as happy with fifth edition and 4E did this and 4E did that, in my opinion, 13th Age did all of the cool stuff of four, fourth edition better than fourth edition did. I really, I really felt like this was an excellent evolution of of fourth edition the book itself you can get a couple different ways and i have one way that i recommend you can pick it up and drive through rpg it's 25 bucks for the pdf which is a little high i will also tell you that there are often bundles of holding that include 13th age in it for a lot less so if you you can wait and you can get it on sale the other way to get it which i do recommend is you can pick up the printed pdf copy for 45 bucks and that is definitely uh worthwhile i have I have my print copy sitting right here on my shelf. I've had this copy for a long time. I think it's autographed by Jonathan Tweet or Rob Hainso. No, but I have a I have a card that is. So, and it's the whole RPG. It's got everything that you would expect to be able to to get in multiple books. You get in one you get in one volume. This includes all of your character building stuff, all your players' handbook style stuff is in here to make characters. All of, there's a big monster gazetteer in here, a bunch of different monsters that you can run. It's got a whole thing about their particular world, so it's got like a gazetteer and an atlas for their for their world. It's got an adventure built into it. So it's got player advice, dungeon master advice, monster manual, world book, and monster and and written into one volume. So it's a really good deal. You can you can just buy the one copy, right? And you run the entire game right out of this one book. And I remember I asked them. I, I talked to, to Rob Hainso. I've talked to Rob a, a few times. I've actually done some freelance, some thirteenth age freelance work. I think I have some monsters, or I have at least one monster or multiple monsters inside the thirteenth age second bestiary. And I talked to him and I was like, why did you put everything in one book like that? He goes, because we're terrible business people, but we're, we're, we're very passionate RPG designers and we wanted to make it as easy as possible. I actually think it was a really good business decision to put everything in the book like that. Shadow of the Demon Lord, I've talked about before, they do the same thing. And I think if I were to make a recommendation to any group that was making an RPG, it would be don't follow the Watsi model of three books. Make one book that you can buy that has everything in it. 
because it's just so much more convenient and and you're so much more likely to get people to, to, to get on board if they can buy one book and have everything in it. So yeah, so let's 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 go back here. So what makes Thirteenth Age so awesome? Uh, a whole bunch of things. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of look through the contents here, right? There's some things that are awesome. There's some things that are like seem cool, but in all my play, I could never get them to work quite right. This is a so if fifth edition has a flat math curve, if you think about fifth edition as like proficiency bonuses only go up every few levels, generally speaking, the math is flat. You'll have some attributes that never really get higher, stuff like that. This is not that. This one has a very steep power curve. There are only 10 levels of play in 13th age, but a 10th level character in 13th age is the equivalent of a 20th level character in D&D. A 10th level character is really, really powerful. And pretty much all of the math of the game scales up as you level. You get all of your bonuses go up. Your armor class goes up. You know, armor class goes up with level, right? So unlike 5th edition where your armor class only goes up as you get AC bonuses, this one, it goes up with level. You're, you get new power, lots of new powers every level. And even your damage goes up. So when you're, a, when you're a, a weapon, if you attack with a weapon, the damage of your weapon attack goes up in dice. So it's not uncommon. We used to laugh when we were playing it about you'd have rogues, high-level rogues in 13th age who would roll like 36 dice. They would have huge handfuls of dice. And it makes it, it, there's one house rule I would apply, which is once you reach more than four dice in your pool of dice that you start averaging the pairs of them out. So like every two dice you pull out and you take the average of those two dice and add it as a static bonus. So you roll four dice. You never have to roll more than four dice for any attack, but you still get your, you can still get those extra damage. So it's a pretty, a pretty straightforward way. What are some of the others? So that, so the, so this, you know, a big notable thing is that it's got a big static curve. Another notable thing is that instead of skills, you have your backgrounds. And you essentially apply skill bonuses. You, you get up to three backgrounds and you can apply eight points worth of skill points to any given background, to any spread of backgrounds, no more than five per any one background. And anytime that background would be applicable to a situation, you get to add that bonus to your, to your role. So it's a much, it means that there's no, the skill list is both infinite and really short, right? For any given character, you're only gonna have like three backgrounds, up, up to about three backgrounds that you would apply, and then bonuses for them. And you don't have to have this giant list of backgrounds or skills that everybody wants to know. So it works, it works really well in play. It means that generating a character is much faster than it is to generate characters in other RPGs because you, you, you're mostly thinking about what your character is like and applying, applying backgrounds to them. So one other, there's one other major character function, which is very story focused, which is this idea of a one unique thing. When you generate your character, one of the things you ask about your character is what makes my character unique in the world? And you don't want to say like unique, it's, it's usually a big thing. So like one of my traits was I had a warrior and he had three undead ghost hags that only he could see that guided his actions in all things. He was guided by the ghosts of three hags. And I remember I, I took a miniature and I put like three miniatures behind him of three hags that were I, like, I like used st st sticky putty to put them all together. And that was my mini. All right. This is when uh, my friend Dave Chalker ran a game for me. That was the character I ran. I remember it. I remember it still. And so every character has sort of this unique thing, a, a, a relatively big, unique thing that sets you apart from everybody else in the world, right? And, and that was a it's, a, it's a really interesting way to kind of make, to make a character. Then another big character trait is the, the icons, right? The icons are uh, 13, and I think there are 13 icons, 
right? I'm pretty sure because 13th age. There are 13 icons and the icons are not gods. They are very powerful mortal beings are almost mortal, right on the edge of not mortal beings. They're, but they're physical beings in the world that are sort of guiding all of the main things that are going on in the world. And when you build a character, you set up relationships with three of these icons. And the relationships could be good, bad, or complicated, right? For any of these three. And those relationships with the icons guide. At, at the beginning of every session, you roll relationship, you know, relationship dice. With, you know, and the... Which die, which dice rolls come up for your icons mean that the game is going to shift a little bit in that direction. And this is something that was a really interesting kind of storytelling idea that was really hard to run when I ran it, you know, and, and there was tricks to it. One example is you could, you could basically have your players roll before they finished a session so that you would know what it would be next time which is a good lazy way to do it. I thought it was always interesting to say, no, I want to roll it at the beginning of a session because I want to have to, I want to be forced to have to improvise this stuff. But the other problem is when you have 13 icons and you have five characters, you're, you're going to have so many different icons that trying to figure out why all, let's say it's 10, why all 10 icons are involved in this situation was really hard. So what I used to do instead was I think we would pick five I think we would pick at the beginning of like a session zero, we would pick a subset of these icons and, and, you know, all together, the group and the DM would get together and pick like a small subset of icons. And then all of the players would have to use those five. They'd all have to agree that those five are the ones that we're going to use. And I'm going to pick three of those and then make good, bad, or complicated. And I think we, maybe it was six. We picked two good ones, two bad ones, and two complicated ones. And then people could shift up their relationships. And that meant that as a DM, I could have the campaign focused a bit. So I had a whole campaign that was based on the three, which are like the three big dragons, right? And it was like, where's the fourth dragon, right? And, and I would pick, you know, six icons. So, so reducing the icons from 13 to six made the game, the campaign more manageable. And it also meant when those roles came up, it was easier for me to kind of shift back and forth. But that whole icon thing, the, the, this, the situation with the icons and relationships is pretty baked into the game. It's, it's important. There's a lot of mechanics that are tied to it, but it was also kind of a tricky thing to run if you're not a good, strong improvisational DM. So what else? Some interesting things are that your class determines your weapons. Your class determines your damage with your weapons. So let's see. I'm trying to find like a beautiful art in this book, by the way. Really, really great. It's the design of the book. And it's a great big thread-bound book with big thick pages. It, the book is outstanding. It's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful book, beautiful RPG. So yeah, one of the interesting bits, there's a lot of things that are abstracted in uh, 13th age that I think it's cool that are abstracted. One of them is the damage dice that you do as a character is independent of your weapon, which means you get to describe in world what your weapon is like, and it can be very unique, right? So in one of my fifth edition D&D games, in my Salt Marsh game, we had a character who we had an ore, and he, he wanted to talk about the fact that he had this like ore that he beat people up with. And we had to kind of abstract like, okay, we're gonna treat that like a great club. Right. And that worked out. That was fine. But we still had to say it's a great club. Right. In this one, you can fight with any weapon that your character can pick up. There's no there's no weapon types in it. Instead, you get to dis your, your character does so much damage holding whatever weapon is appropriate to them, which means you can do a lot of customization of the weapons that don't have to change the mechanics at all. And, and I thought that was a really and a really interesting take on it. The other. The other thing that I adore, and this this got me to change how I play D&D. &D. A lot of things in 13th Age changed how I play D&D. &D. 
And a big one was Abstract Combat. This was the first D20 game I played where, where distances were abstract. So if you look at certain spells, so if you look at spells like Lightning Fork, right? Lightning Fork is sort of your chain lightning-ish lightning bolt sort of idea but instead of like a line where everybody has to be lined up lightning fork says targets one nearby and one nearby enemy right and then if you miss all targets so target one nearby enemy attack charisma 3d6 plus charisma lightning damage and it, it scales up 76 at third so lightning fork actually you get early you get it first level but it scale it gets more powerful as you level up once per battle if you miss with you miss all targets is it more targets why does it say different targets i'm confused ah chain spell each time you make a natural even attack roll you can attack a different target with the spell so you can start to hit as you're rolling these attack rolls you can do it and you notice that you roll an attack roll for lightning bolt there's it's similar in the way that fourth edition was and you can see how it scales up 76 60 10 10 d 10 2 d 8 times 10 damage right imagine that huge you see how that big power curve on this so all of these are like target you you or one nearby ally scorching ray one nearby enemy right do they have a fireball chaos pulse one random nearby enemy that's kind of cool. Echoing Thunder, one nearby. And some of the, the group spells, like the, the wizards have, it looks like the sorcerer, I, I forgot this, that the sorcerer's almost all single target attacks. So let's look at wizard, right? I'm looking for a fireball. So here's like your traditional guys, right? Lightning bolt. 1d3 plus one nearby enemies in a group or in a rough line, right? And what they're saying is like, it's not, it's abstract, right? What you're doing is abstract. You know, and the amount of damage, 78 lightning damage or 10d10 or 2d, 2d8 times 10 or 3d8 times 10 damage, right? 3d8 times 10 damage. Woo. You see how big these spells get. So this is the first time I saw games where they had abstract measurements and abstract distances and abstract stuff done done inside a uh, D20 game. And it got me to learn how narrative combat works. Now I run Theater of the Mind Combat with 5th edition using similar stuff to this, right? Here's another interesting thing they do. Hold monster, the target says one nearby enemy with 60 hit points or fewer. You can't cast hold monster on, on creatures that are roughly bigger than you are. And that means that the saver suck spells work well. You, 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 you can damage a monster, get it down its hit points, and then cast a saver suck spell on it. It's an interesting way of limiting spell effectiveness. Imagine if Banish said you can only cast this on a creature that has 50 hit points or less. Well, now you know you can't cast Banish on that big dragon, but you can if you knock the dragon down enough, right? The, the key here is, of course, the, the players have to know how much hit points a monster has. So you don't want to play this game of like, well, you burned out your spell because you hit it. I think they say in here, the intent is you would tell them if it doesn't work, right? I think that's right. So that's really interesting. The, the, the design of this is really interesting. The other thing I'll talk about is monster design. So monsters in this are very straightforward. They're very powerful as well. We'll go to my favorite one, the Balor. Right? Let's find. I love the. I love these. You know, there's fire giant. Uh, very unique kind of art where they're showing like the icon art more than actual more than actual stuff. Well, we'll take a look at the huge red dragon. Right, huge red dragon is the equivalent of like your your great worm or not a great worm, but like an ancient dragon. It's a thirteenth level. So when they say huge, huge actually means it is three times more powerful than a standard 13th level creature, 
right? So creatures have sort of levels. That's size is one. The size of a creature determines how many creatures it's like. But also then they'll say like double strength. So you'll see sometimes where it'll be like a double strength guy. And that means that it's the equivalent of two monsters, which means it's much easier to do encounter building because you're basically filling in the slots that you have for characters. If you have you know, 13th, obviously there's no 13th level characters, but you know, there are 10th level characters. So... But look how straightforward, like this is the dragon, right? Like even compared to the dragons we were just talking about, the new ones that are in Fizzbands, the simplified dragons of Fizzbands, this is way simpler, right? But boy, is it effective. So huge 13th level uh, wrecker. They, they, give it, they give it those kind of traits. Plus 19 AC, three attacks, 70 damage. First natural even hit, roll a fourth fang, claw or, fang or claw attack, right? So you notice fangs, claws, and tail are all essentially uh, the same attack bonus and the same damage and look how much that damage that is right plus 19 to hit three attacks 70 damage right that's what is that 210 points of damage with just you know just claws and tail 210 points right really big uh breath weapon right 2d3 nearby or far away enemies right 2d3 that's a lot of people it can hit 80 fire damage and a miss on half damage right intermittent breath huge dragon use fiery breath 1d6 times per battle but never two turns in a row Fear while engaged with this enemy uh, with 144 hit points or fewer are dazed, minus four. So if your hit points are low, you're going to be dazed, minus four to attacks. Resist fire. When a fire attack, uh, fire attack targets this creature, the, the attacker must roll an 18 plus an attack roll. That's how it handles like fire resistance. And then like AC 28, physical defense 27. See, look, look, look how simple these stats are, right? There's four stats, AC, physical defense, mental defense, and hit points. Real straightforward stuff, right? So they made monsters very simple because they realized that like the interesting bit of the characters, the interesting thing of the things that characters do. We want, but monsters are very dangerous and very effective. So as a, as a DM, I really enjoyed running these, these pretty straightforward monsters. And there's a lot of things that trigger on like odd or even hits. So there's a lot of like you know, how the monster acts is dependent upon what kind of attack rolls it got, which I think is really good. So I really like the monster design. You'll also notice static damage, right? 70 damage. We don't roll whatever 70 point, 10 D6 damage, 20 D6 damage to get 70. We don't roll that. We just apply static amount. You notice fifth edition has static damage too, but there's a lot of rebellion about, oh, I like rolling for monster damage. Okay. Well, in this one's not even a choice. There's only static damage. And I think it's really effective. So 13th Age showed me a lot of the things that D&D can be. And I brought a lot of the techniques that I use in my 5th edition D&D games I got from 13th Age. Whenever I think about like, you know, a new version of 5th edition that broke away from some of the principles of 5th edition D&D, almost all of the things I come back to are already in this book. And then I thought about like, what would a, if we were to take 13th Age principles and apply it to 5th edition, what would it be like? I don't need to do that. There, this is it, right? I don't need to make a 13th age. There is a 13th age and it's great. It's a great RPG. So in short, it's, it's one of my favorite RPGs. I really love 13th age. If I wasn't playing fifth and I wanted to play a D&D like game, I would play more 13th age. I would probably customize a lot of the icons and stuff like that, but I would play more 13th age as it is. I really like fifth edition as well. So, you know, why do I play fifth and not 13th age? Because I, I like some of the shallow nature of 5th edition. Uh, and I like that it feels, you know, it's kind of tied better in with D&D. So that's the reason. Could you take 13th Age and put it in D&D Worlds? Absolutely. So yeah, I really adore it. I think it's a great RPG. If you have the chance to run it, I suggest you do. If you have, if you have the chance to even just to read it, it's really good D&D cross-training.
If you want to get better at a fifth edition game, if you want to get better running D&D, play other RPGs. That's one of the things you can do. And 13th Age would be an excellent RPG to play. And certainly if you want to get better at Theater of the Mind, if you want to be more comfortable with static monster damage, if you want to see what uh, spiky game. If you wanted to play 4th edition, play this. Right? This is better than 4E, in my opinion. I love it. I love it so much. It's way better than 4E. And it was developed by one of the people who developed 4th edition. Thus ends my spotlight on 13th Age. Great game. Pick it up. What else? All right. Let's, yeah, I was going to talk about Call of the Nether Deep. I guess we'll just, you know what? We're going to save the Nether Deep conversations for next week because I would like to do some questions from Patreon. The call for the Nether Deep, for those that don't know, is the new Critical Role book that just got announced. Uh, and Critical Role is also in Variety Magazine. But we'll talk, I think we'll save that stuff for next week. So, PhD, PhD20, that's a good name. PhD20, the steps from the Lazy DM are great for planning what might happen in a campaign. Good, good job saying might happen because we know it isn't what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. We're preparing ourselves to be able to move when the game moves as we run it. Good, good thing highlighting might and even making it all caps what does the process look like for tracking what did happen what is canon versus what exists only in prep that is a good that is a good question i suck at this so you're asking the wrong guy i have a pretty poor so one thing is i'll tell you using the notion using notion as my campaign guide means i can go back through old sessions and see being able to take i i think i think when I look at what did happen, most of the time it's like solidifying an NPC or, you know, I guess when we're thinking about like, well, what are the main story arcs? Most of the time I can just remember them. They're big enough that I can just remember. There might be details with NPCs. And in that case, it's worth having like some way of recording an NPC. If it's a three by five card that you keep on your table, or if it's like a, a, a piece of your notion notebook or some page for that npc where you can paste information about how that npc changed or what the relationship changed that would be that would be useful in a, in a lot of the same way that we think about what components make up an adventure npcs secrets monsters items locations stuff like that in the same way we can think about that we're tracking those same things but i find that i'm mostly looking forward i tend not to look back so the only time i need to worry this is and this is kind of an individual preference this isn't like I don't have a good lazy DM system for this like I do for prep, right? But I know that I'm far more interested in what's happening in the future than I am in what's happening in the past. Where this could get embarrassing is I've, I've, I've done 10 secrets. I did this for my Wednesday game the other day. I wrote down 10 secrets and I had all 10 of them they already knew. All 10 of them were things they'd already picked up. And I should have like, boy, it'd have been nice if I kept track of what stuff they already knew, right? But I didn't. And and when they were doing, I remember when one of the players who was very good at taking notes was describing the last session, all of the things he described that they learned were all things that I was like, oh man, I thought those were all new secrets and they weren't new at all. So this is where I say I'm not particularly good at it, right? I think you could do worse than going back and looking over your old notes when you're doing your your prep, especially if you're looking at secrets. What secrets got passed? What didn't? You know, I think that you can. I think you can go back and kind of peek back at what happened in the past. But generally speaking, I'm always thinking about, and I I, I like to laser this focus down to uh, what's next, right? What's the next session? What happens in the next session? I think it's so important to focus on the next session and to then to go through, and, you know, if you're depending on what your prep looks like, and for mine, it is go through the eight steps to prep for the next session. So I'm prepared. It's so much more important than like, in my opinion, than like making sure that all of the back plots are handled. Like these stuff tends to come back, right? They, these in, things that are important to the characters, things that are important to the players, they're going to come back. You're going to remember them. 
So that's my that's my thought on that. I hope that answered your question. Uh, PhD 20. Roy A asks, so uh, a couple things. One is where are these questions coming from? These are coming from patrons. So if you are a patron of Sly Flourish, every month I'm going to put up a new uh, post that says, hey, as a patron of Sly Flourish, we're going to set a Q&A post and you can post your questions and I'll talk about them here. They might spur me to uh, do other videos or articles or other things. In many, in a few cases, I've already done stuff on them, in which case I'll link to the, oh yeah, I've already covered that. And here's, here's the cover. A lot of the questions come come back and I've got stuff on them. So uh, that's where these are coming. So Roy A asks, I've been using the lazy DM method for several years now. Yay. In several groups and all the players have never had more fun in RPG before. That's awesome. That's mostly due to you right? Like I'm glad that my system worked. It is not the system that is making great games. You're making great games. The stories are always epic and engaging. So thank you. Thank you. The only note I get from players more than once is that they sometimes feel like there's no tension since they figured out already that no matter what they choose to do, I roll with it and apply the lazy DM technique to make the story work. They figured out my technique, so like, so like deep down, they know that they can't actually make a wrong decision. Of course, I can amp up combat and other encounter difficulty to challenge them more so they won't be sure they make it out alive or in one piece. But story-wise, how can I make sure they retain the feeling that they might be wrong? How do I also prepare? How about also preparing a list of negative clues or detriments? So I think that the idea of tracking your villains can work really well. I talk about this in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. We call them fronts. I'm still thinking about the name, but I'm, 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 I'm leaning more towards villains. People like fronts, but people don't often understand what a front is. So uh, 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 think about villains in your game and think about the three big villains in your game that are motivating it forward. And in, the, in my case, a villain doesn't necessarily need to be a sentient entity. It could be the world is against you or a meteor is going to crash down or something, right? The world is breaking apart, right? Something, it can be anything so that's why front works because it's like a, either a weather front or like a front in, a, in, in, in the military, right? It's a, you know, it's a thing that's moving forward that is detrimental to the character. So if you think about your three villains and you think about what they're doing, in many cases, you can, you can ratchet up how fast the villains are getting away with what they're getting. And if you want to put the tension on them, the tension is no matter which villain they start applying their attention towards, the other villains are doing things that they can't stop. So uh, Princes of the Apocalypse does this, for example. As you go after the different, what are they called? The, 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 the different main villains in Princes of the Apocalypse. There's a name for them. They're like Apocalypse Princes or Apocalypse. I don't know what they are. I forget the name of them. The Prophets, right? There's four Prophets. Whichever prophets you're going after, the other ones are moving forward. So whichever one, you know, you could go pick one that you start with and you aim towards there and you dig through the dungeon, you find them and you kill them. And you're great. Earth cult is taken care of, except the fire, air and water cults all just went up, right? They actually go deeper. They get closer to the closer to their ability to summon. Then you like go after another one. And then the other ones go deeper. Then you go after the third and you get to the third one. That was deeper. But then the fourth one summons a demon prince. Or not demon prince, an elemental prince, right? So you, you're always going to have an elemental prince. It's just which one are you going to end up facing, right? And when you're running the adventure, it's not clear to players that that's what's happening, but they're they're seeing things ratcheting up around them. Oh, I, you know, because their attention is limited. They can only apply it to one group and these other things are going on. This can actually go wrong in the other direction, which is players can feel helpless with the fact that no matter what I do, three other things happen in the world. So I, I had a player who said, like, I would really love to watch the world evolve while we're playing. And I said, great. And I ran a campaign. It was actually in Icewind Dale. I ran the, I ran the original Legacy of the Crystal Shard adventure. And in, Leg in Legacy of the Crystal Shard, there were three villains all doing stuff. Uh, Akar, the resurrection of Alcar Castle, Valish Gant from the Arcane Brotherhood, and I think an evil dwarf, right? Uh, a, cursed, a cursed dwarf. 
all three of them were doing things, right? And as the characters were taking care of one, the other one was escalating until eventually they found out that like Valish Gant took over 10 towns or took over Bryn Shander while they were off dealing with the dwarves. And the player came back to me and said, you know, I thought I was going to love this and I hate it. And I was like, why? And she goes, because I just, I feel like we can't stop this stuff, right? She's like, it's cool, but boy, it's high pressure. And I was like, yeah. So that's, that I think is a really good way in what you're talking about. It's pure lazy DM style. The three villain, you know, find three villains, think about what they want, think about what, what steps they're taking to achieve their goals and escalate those steps that every time the players are busy with another one, the other ones are continuing to escalate until they have to deal with one or the other. So that works, that works really well. Let's see, maybe a couple more questions. Christopher W says, how would you use the eight steps for a mega dungeon? Example, while running Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there was no way for me to remember what happens in each room. But since each, since such dungeons allow PCs to explore down any old passage, I felt I needed to know everything, at least on that level. What might be the lazy way to prep for these kinds of dungeons? That's a good question. So I didn't run Dungeon of the Mad Mage, so I can't I can't describe that. But I have run some kind of big dungeons. So like the Tomb uh, Tomb of the Nine Gods in Tomb of Annihilation, for example, is a is a big is a big one. I've got a cat on my lap. Cats decided that now is the time for cuddles. See what's say hello to hello kitty. Hello. Oh, there's a kitty. There you go. He's like, all right, enough of that. So Dungeon of the Mad Mage. I never ran Dungeon of the Mad Mage myself, but I've run big dungeons. And I so abstracting your secrets and clues, this is where abstraction abstracting your secrets and clues really helps. It doesn't matter which path they take they can still learn the same secrets right and when you have dungeon of the mad mage where it's so big right you know that can actually be really hard because if you can't just have secrets for any one floor right i think that trying to know what's in every passage is is not you know is kind of impossible and i don't think you need to do that hang on i gotta chase the kitty way get out of here I have these little elastic bands that I use to keep the tarp up and he's decided that he wants to chew on the elastic bands. I'm going to kick him out. All right. He already chewed up two of them. Luckily I have 10. And so he chewed two of them up, but, and so now I have to put them away afterwards, except now if he's chewing them while I'm using them, well, that's a problem. So I think that the eight steps can still work for a dungeon in the same way they can work for other things. I think when they have, I, I think you, you have to trust the material and that you can, when they go to a chamber, if you don't necessarily know what's in that chamber, uh, it's okay not to know what's in there and be able to run it anyway. But yeah, for mega dungeons can be hard this way, right? It's, it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on in any one area. And your hope is that the mega dungeon is developed in a way that you can, you can focus on one level at a time. You read that level and you understand that level. But, but I know Dungeon of the Mad Mage in particular, each floor is really big. So it's a lot of stuff, right? It's, I mean, it's 15 character levels worth. I think it was 23 dungeon levels in one book. I don't think you can really like memorize everything that's in there or know everything that's in there, but you can still do your secrets and clues. You can still do your other ideas. You can still abstract monsters from the chambers that they go to and then decide which monsters are going to show in at a given time. You can still improvise your beats, right? You can still like reduce the number of monsters or increase the number of monsters in any given room, depending on how easy things have been. So I think you need to let go of the idea of knowing everything that's on a dungeon because I don't think anybody could do that. And instead, think about what are the things they could learn regardless of what chambers that they go to. I hope that helps. I, I, I don't have a great answer for this one either, kind of some of the other ones. 
Mike Shea knows his, shows his ignorance in this episode. Cayman B says, I really like puzzle fights, but I'm lazy. Any resources where I can steal almost everything I need are a big list of different ones. I, I don't have <laughs> any three answers. I don't have good ones to. I'm not a puzzle guy. And I don't, I don't, I, 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 I'm going to go on my puzzle rant here. There's lots of, there's probably lots of resources you could do. Obviously, uh, Tasha's has a whole section of puzzles in the, in the end, in the back of it. I think there's 10 pages worth of puzzles that in Tasha's that you can take a look at. There's also alternative things I've done. I've done like Sudoku puzzles. I've done, uh, mastermind, like the game mastermind. There's good ways to do puzzles like that. I've used that before and I've let go of most of it. And the reason why is that it's, it's kind of like learning another game inside of a current game. Cats are all kinds of problems today. It's, it's kind of a, it, it, it forces a different kind of game into the game that you're running, right? And we already have a game. We already have D&D. The other one is that from an in-world perspective, they, they often don't make sense. Imagine if you were locking up your house and instead of having a key, you had a Sudoku puzzle people could solve. Well, smart villains, smart criminals are going to come in, maybe come in and do the Sudoku puzzle and get into your house, right? Like, why would you put a Sudoku puzzle on the cover, on the, on the door of your house? So a lot of times the puzzles don't make sense. If you go to a tomb, like... If the, you know, why would the tomb say whoever can figure out Sudoku uh, is, is worthy of my treasure, right? Like, why would they bother to do that, right? Instead, there's, what's the in-world reason that, that, that exists there? So, you know, instead, it's like we have the skill checks, right? We have skill checks and we have what players do and, that, and what characters are going to do. And between those, you can really kind of figure out, you know, what, what you need. Because you think about like, well, what, how would they lock up a door? Well, you know, an arcane, uh, setting up a glyph of warding isn't a puzzle, but figuring out that there's a glyph of warding on the door and also another lock and then figuring out the traps that are there and how to disarm them. That's kind of its own puzzle. It's just using the regular D&D rules. And it makes sense in the world because you would set up traps and the trap is if you try to get through this door, it's going to slice you in half, right? It's not puzzles. So, yeah. So I think that works. Somebody asks, do you use riddles? I, I, I will if it makes sense, right? And then I'll go look some up online and try to find a riddle. Sphinx. Uh, I remember that like we were playing White Plume Mountain, right? And there's a Gyna Sphinx right at the front door. And I remember the players would come up and, then, and they, they had like a riddle. And then the joke was that the Gyna Sphinx only knew so many riddles and would say the same thing. So, you know, the, the people would come down the hall and they would go like, you know, I forget what the riddle was. It's something like, you know, high up in the sky. I'm like, moon. <laughs> and he's like, all right, go ahead. <laughs> and they would just, you know, they would just yell out the answer because they knew, they knew exactly what the puzzle was going to be. And that was a very fun NPC interaction, which I think is more, which is, is more fun. So there are lots of things in the game that actually act like puzzles that you got to figure out, but they make more sense when they're in world, right? You, what is the actual situation? Who put it there? Why did they put it there? And why would they have a puzzle? An example is there are kind of puzzles in Tomb of Annihilation, but they're all so counterproductive and counterintuitive, and it's designed to cause stress to the characters. Like the, the, the tomb is trying to cause pain, right? So like there's all these puzzles where there's no good way to know the answer, right? And I remember I had a player who's like, I hate these puzzles. And it's like, well, he kind of designed them so that you'd hate them. And then my big fun in the game was they, they met the caretaker who said like, oh, I have a, I have a survey we'd like to take. How did you feel? I hate him. Oh, excellent. How much stress did you feel in that room with the disintegration box? Hi, excellent. Right. And so it was a survey of like trying to make sure that they were causing the most amount of pain to the, to the characters without killing him. So that was fun. 
Thank you for that question. So we got more questions to come. I actually have to add more questions to the list. So I don't know that I'm going to get through all the good questions in October, but I, I, they're excellent. I answer them in Patreon, in, in the Patreon page as well, not just here. So if I don't cover them, I will at least cover them there as well. So I want to thank you all very much for hanging out with me today uh, on the Lazy d Talk Show. It's great fun. I always look forward every week to doing the show. I think it's, I think it's my favorite show that I do. And uh, let's see. So in just a couple minutes, for those of you on Twitch, those in a couple minutes, I'm going to start my Lazy DM prep. We got really interesting things that happened in my Frost Maiden game, including the Shardalon Dragons. We're going to talk about that. And then on Thursday, I'm probably going to do another Let's Make an Adventure using the Lazy DM stuff from the Lazy DM Companion. This time, we're going to look at small rooms and stuff. And then next Sunday, we will have another D&D talk show. So thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. If you want to help me out, there's a few things you can do. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. You can subscribe to the Patreon and become a patron or you can pick up any of my books or right now you can back the Kickstarter for the Lazy Games Companion. So thank you all very much for coming today. Have a great day.